0: So uh, before we go on to talk uh, a little bit about the American historicist uh, hermeneutical scholar Ed Hirsch and Wolfgang Ezer, uh, for whom you have your reading d- assignment, uh, I want to go back to Gadamer a little bit and say something more about his taste—that is to say, the kind of literary and intellectual canon. That his approach to hermeneutics establishes. You remember, Gadamer is very much concerned with the norm of classicism, which later in his essay he's inclined to call tradition instead. Uh, and the reason that that's so important to him is that he actually has a very conservative view of what the reader can accomplish in understanding another horizon. Gadamer, in other words, does think that the reader can perform any great miracles in intuitively feeling his or her way into the mind of another time and place. So that the value of classicism and of tradition for Gadamer is that there is evident common ground in certain texts. Sometimes we refer to them as great books. In other words, the sort of text that speaks or we feel as though it's speaking uh, to all places and times. Uh, of course, it's contested whether or not there's really any any merit in talking about texts that way. But Gadamer's view is very strongly that this conservatism about the canon, which is re- intimately related to his conservatism, his doubt about the actual capability of a reader to span enormous gaps, and I use that word advisedly because it is the word that Easer uses, uh, to talk about the distance between the reader and the text and the way in which that, and the way in which that distance should be negotiated. So in any case, um, this conservatism, it seems to me, however, can be questioned. And I thought that we'd begin then by turning to page 731, Uh, the left-hand column, the footnote. Uh, You're beginning to realize, I'm sure, that I like footnotes. Uh, Gibbon, of course, was said to have lived his life in his footnotes. Um, Perhaps I live my life in the footnotes of other people. In any case, in this footnote, Gadamer says something. I, I, I think it's very rare that we can actually just sort of outright disagree with Gadamer, but he says something in this footnote that I believe we can actually disagree with. Toward the bottom of the footnote, 731, left-hand column, he says, "...just as in conversation we understand irony to the extent to which we are in agreement on the subject with the other person." We understand irony only, he means, to the extent to which we are in agreement with the other person. If you are expressing an opinion in otherwise which differs radically from my own, I can't understand, according to Gadamer, whether or not you're being ironic. This seems to me to be just patently false. Uh, Think about politics. Think about political talk shows. Think about political campaigns. When our political opponent, is being ironic about our views. We understand the irony perfectly well. We're used to it. Uh, We've accommodated ourselves to it, and of course it's the same in reverse. Our opponent understands our ironies, and there is, it seems to me, a perfect, a kind of symbiosis, ironically enough, um, between political opponents precisely maybe in the measure to which their ironies are mutually intelligible. It probably teaches each of them a good deal uh, to accommodate, to encounter, to get used to the ironies of the other. And I think this applies to conversation in general. It's very easy to pick up most forms of irony. We don't have have an enormous difficulty grasping them, and it doesn't seem to me that our capability of grasping irony is founded on a necessary underlying agreement. That's what he's saying. Now, if this is the case, it seems to me that one has found a loophole in Gadamer's conservatism about what the reader can do. His premise is that in order to understand, there has to be a basis of agreement. But if what we've just said about understanding each other's ironies, even where there is pretty wholesale disagreement, is true, that ought to apply also to our capacity to read, work. That with which we distinctly disagree, with which we feel we can never come to terms uh, in terms of affirming its value, but which we nevertheless can understand. If understanding is not predicated on agreement, the possibility of opening up the canon, as we say, insisting that it doesn't have to be an absolutely continuous traditional canon is available to us once again. And Gadamer's conservatism on this issue can be questioned. Now, it's not that Gadamer's insisting on absolute continuity. On the contrary, you'll probably remember that on page 732, um, the, the, uh, um, the it can't be 732, so please disregard that. I'm not going to read this passage anyway. Uh, uh, he says early in the essay, that in order to recognize that we are in the presence of something that isn't merely within our own historical horizon, we need to be pulled up short. In other words, to go back to that example, once more the, um, we need to recognize that there's something weird about that word plastic, um, and in being pulled up short, we recognize the need also for the fundamental act of reading in Gadamer, which is the merger of horizons. In other words, that we are dealing knowingly with a horizon not altogether our own that has to be negotiated, that has to be merged with our own for understanding to be possible. In fact, Gadamer even insists that if we don't have this phenomenon of being pulled up short, our reading is basically just solipsistic. We we just take it for granted that what we're reading is completely within our own horizon um, and we don't make any effort at all to understand that which is fundamentally or at least in some ways different. Gadamer acknowledges this, even insists on it, as I say, but he doesn't lay stress on it because The gap that is implied in the need to be pulled up short is not a big one. That is to say, it's one that we can easily satisfy. Plastic, again, oh gee, that's a strange word we say, so we go to the OED, we see it meant something different then, our problem is solved, and we continue. No big deal, right? But there may be uh, ways of being pulled up short, occasions for being pulled up short, That Gadamer thinks exceed the imaginative grasp of a reader, and this, as you'll see when we return to Ezer after I've said a few things about Hirsch, this, as you'll see, is the fundamental difference between Gadamer and Ezer. Where, where wherefore, Gadamer, the gap between reader and text, between my horizon and the horizon of the text, is is perforce a small one. For Ezer, it needs to be a much larger one in order for what he calls the act of the reader, the reading act, really to swing into high gear. And we'll see that this has implications for the obvious difference between their two canons. All right. But now I want to say something about the person who, the passage of whom uh, I quoted over against the passage from Gadamer at the end of the Gadamer Lecture. You remember Gadamer said um, we have to be open to the otherness of the past uh, in, and in order that for us it may speak true. But if we simply bracket out our own feelings, uh, that can't possibly happen, so that we have to recognize that in this mutuality of the reading experience we really are in a conversation. We're open to being told something true by someone else. Hirsch, on the other hand, says, oh well, the important thing is to know the exact meaning of that other person because that's the only way to honor the otherness of the person. Kant says people ought to be uh, an end and not a means for us. We ought to understand them on their terms. Gadamer's claim, however, was that if we do that, we are in fact suspending the way in which it might be that they speak true. We're we're honoring, instead, the integrity of what we're saying without thinking about whether or not it might be true. So I introduced Hirsch in that context, and now I want to go back to him a little bit uh, and I want to work with two passages which I've sent you all uh, in email form, which I've neglected to put on the board, but they're so ch- so short, I don't think that will be necessary. The first of the two passages I want to talk about is Hirsch's argument that consciousness is an aff- th- that meaning is an affair of consciousness and not of words. Meaning is an affair of consciousness and not of words. In other words, the text is what makes the ascertainment of meaning possible and available to us, but meaning is not in the text. Meaning is in the intention of the author, and that is is what we need to arrive at as we work through the text. Meaning is an affair of consciousness and not of words. Now think about this. What it means is, that in understanding a text we are attempting to grasp it in paraphrase. We are, in other words, attempting to grasp it in a sentence that might read something like, what the author means to say is, right? that is so that it's not what the text means, which might be anything according to Hirsch if you've just appealed to the text. it's what the author means to say is. Okay, so what's implied here? On the one hand, you can say this is just absolute total nonsense. Uh, We use a text to find meaning in something that we don't have available to us. Why don't we just find meaning in the text which is available to us? Uh, That would make more sense. It's up to us to construe the text. We can't possibly know what the author meant except on the basis of our determination of the meaning of the text, so why not just focus our attention to meaning on the text? Hirsch was a student of Wimsatt. Hirsch was engaged in lifelong disagreement with Gadamer, but he was a student of Wimsatt, Wimsatt, the author of The Intentional Fallacy. Obviously Hirsch was a rebellious student (laughs) and insisted that Far from uh, wanting to take Wimsat's position, appealing to intention was the most important thing you can do, the only thing you can do, which establishes, according to the title of his first important book on hermeneutics, validity in interpretation. All right. Now, it seems it's, it's very difficult, it's very difficult intuitively to assent to Hearser's position. And I'll just tell you, by the way, that I don't. I can't. Uh, But I will say in passing, in defense of Hirsch, that if we reflect on the matter, we realize that in common-sense terms appealing to an author's intention is precisely what we do for practical reasons. Let me give you an example. You're all students. You are sitting in classrooms that, in many cases, oblige you to take exams. Your instructor tells you, When you write your exam, don't just parrot the words of the authors you're studying. I I want to know that you understand those authors. Think about it. You prove to your teacher that you understand the authors by being able to put their meaning in other words. In other words, to say the author is intending to say something, not just that the text says something and this is what it says so that with your exam, then, you know, one long screed of quotation. Ironically, the, ex- the, the, the instructor doesn't really want just quotation on an exam, he wants explanation. And the form of explanation is paraphrase. You can't have paraphrase unless you can identify a meaning which is interpersonal a meaning which can be shared among a group that understands and can be expressed in other words that's the key if you can put it in other words those other words take the form of an appeal to intention all right so and, and that's an important point argument in Hirsch's favor. We realize that practically speaking, the necessity of appealing to paraphrase in order to guarantee mutual understanding certainly does seem to be something like agreeing or admitting that meaning is an affair of consciousness, not of words. My consciousness, the author's consciousness, the consciousness that we can all share. That's where we find meaning, and meaning takes the form of that f- kind of paragra- paraphrase that everyone can agree on. All right. So much then uh, to, the, uh, to the to the to the advantage or benefit of Hirsch. Uh, there are lots of things to be said against it. On the other hand, which I don't want to pause over now, because I think a A course of lectures in literary theory will inevitably show the ways uh, in which paraphrase is uh, inadequate to the task of rigorous interpretation. Cleanth Brooks, uh, the new critic, uh, uh, writes a famous essay called The Heresy of Paraphrase, insisting that uh, proper literary interpretation is a wooden, mechanical, inflexible exercise if it reduces the incredible complexity of a textual surface, to paraphrase. Um, and so it's a complex issue, uh, and I should, I should leave it, having said this much, leave it ex- at least for the moment. Now, one other thing that Hearst says, the other thing that I, uh, that I quoted, um, Is in effect, I'll paraphrase now, (laughs) that uh, that, that what Gadamer omits to realize is that there is a difference between the meaning of a text and the significance of a text. That is Hirsch's other key position, and we can understand it by saying something like this: the meaning of a text is what the author intended it to mean. That is to say, what we can establish with a reliable paraphrase. The significance of the text, which Hirsch does not deny interest to, the significance of the text is the meaning for us. That is to say, what we take to be important about this meaning. Uh, The way in which, for example, we can translate it into our own terms historically, we can adapt it to a cause or or an intellectual position, the ways, in other words, in which we can take the meaning of a text. And make it significant for us. The difference between meaning and significance, then, is something that Hirsch takes very seriously, and he insists, and here's, of course, where it becomes controversial he insists that it's possible to tell the difference between meaning and significance. If, good historicist that you are, you can pin down accurately and incontestably the author's meaning. Appealing to all the philological tricks that you have, uh, throwing out irrelevancies, and insisting that you finally have the meaning right. And of course, how many times has that happened? Which is obviously one point of disagreement with Hirsch, and insisting that you finally have the meaning right. Then, once you've done that, once you've secured the integrity and accuracy of the meaning, Hirsch says, Okay, fine. Now you can do anything you like with the text. You know, you can adapt it for any, any sort of possible purpose, but the crucial thing is to keep the distinction between meaning and significance clear. Obviously, Gadamer refuses, that we r- refuses to argue that we can distinguish in that way reliably. We don't know because it's a question of merging horizons, my horizon and the horizon of the text. We don't know with any guarantee, where meaning leaves off and significance begins. So that the splitting apart of the two terms is something that simply can't be accomplished by the way in which we enter the hermeneutic circle. That's Gadamer's position, uh, and it is the position of anyone who supposes that uh, Hirsch. Uh, Although, the, once again, although the distinction, what he means by the distinction is clear enough, yes, yes, you say, I see exactly what he means. Nevertheless, the, to secure the distinction is the, in, in, in actual practice, say, okay, this is the meaning, and now this is how I'm going to make it significant. Well, you know, it seems Im- uh, unlikely indeed that this is something anyone could ever accomplish. All right, finally, to turn to Wolfgang Eiser. Iser is concerned with what he calls the act of the reader. Das Akt des Lesers uh, is the title of one of his books, and he is, an, and in so doing he establishes himself as a person very much in the tradition of phenomenology deriving from Husserl, more directly in Iser's case, from a, an analyst of the way in which the reader moves from sentence to sentence in negotiating a text. Uh, a Polish intellectual named Roman Ingarden, who is quoted frequently in the essay that you have. Um, those are the primary influences on Ezer, but he himself has been tremendously influential in turn. Reader's interest in the Ezer's <laughs> interest in the reader's experience uh, is part of a school of thought that he helped to found that grew up around the University of Konstanz in the sixties and seventies, uh, which resulted in a series of seminars on what was called reception history or, alternatively, the aesthetics of reception. And Ezer's colleague was Hans Robert Jauss, whom we will be reading later in the course. Uh, the influence of the so-called Constant School spread to the United States uh, and had many ramifications here, uh, particularly uh, and crucially in the early work of another critic we'll be turning to later in the semester, Stanley Fish. Uh, so reception history has been a kind of partly theoretical, partly scholarly field, uh, one that's really still flourishing ever since the early work in the great Constance seminars of Ezer Jauss uh, and others, so, and Ezer later in his career—he died just a couple of years ago—later in his career taught annually at the uh, University of California, Irvine, and by that time he was very much engaged in a new aspect of his project, uh, which he called the anthropology of fiction. That is to say, why do we have fiction? Why do we tell stories to each other? All of Ezer's work is grounded in the notion of literature as fiction. He's almost exclusively a scholar of the novel. And by the way, one of the first obvious differences uh, you can notice between Ezer and Gadamer is that, whereas Gadamer is an intellectual historian whose canonical texts are works of philosophy, uh, works of social thought, uh, as well as great works of literature. Uh, for Ezra, it's a completely different canon. He is exclusively concerned with fiction and how we read fiction and how we come to understand fiction and how we determine the meaning of a work of fiction, and as I say in the le- in the last phase of his career, when he started thinking about the anthropology of fiction, um, he raised the even more fundamental question. I think a very important one, though not necessarily to be aimed exclusively at fiction. Uh, the anthropological question: Why we have fiction at all? Why it has been a persisting transhistorical phenomenon of human culture that we tell stories to each other, that we make things up. Uh, when after all, when after all we could be spending all of our time, well, just talking about things that actually are around us. How is it that we feel the need to make things up? All right now. As you read Ezer, you'll see immediately that he, in tone and in and, and in his sense of what's important and his understanding of the way in which we negotiate the world of texts, that he much more closely resembles Gadamer than Hirsch. We can say this um, in two different ways. We can say that Ezer's position is a way is, a, is is a reconstruction of what. Gadamer says, has essentially to say about the merger of horizons. For example, on page 1002, uh, the bottom of the left hand column over to the right hand column, he says, The convergence of text and reader, the convergence of text and reader, Gadamer's way of putting that would be the merger of the uh, reader's horizon, my horizon, with the horizon within which the text appears. Ezer says the convergence of text and reader brings the literary work into existence. This is implied in Gadamer as well. It's not your horizon. It's not my horizon. It's that effective history which takes place when our horizons merge. That is the locus of meaning for Gadamer. By the same token, for what, what what Iser is saying is that the space of meaning is virtual, and this is the word he uses. It's neither in the text nor in the reader, but the result of the negotiation back and forth between the text and the reader. He says, so it brings the literary work into existence in a virtual space. And this convergence can never be precisely pinpointed, but must always remain. Virtual, and is not to be identified either with the reality of the text or with the individual disposition of the reader. So you see this is God a This is the result, this is the fruit of the hermeneutic engagement between horizons that results in meaning. It's put in a different way by Ezer, but it is uh, in a large degree the same idea. He also Plainly shares with Gadamer, the assumption, the supposition, that the construal of meaning cannot be altogether objective. In other words, Ezer is no more uh, an historicist than Gadamer is, but insists rather on this mutual exchange of prejudice between the two horizons in question. So he argues on page one thousand five, the right-hand column. One text, this is halfway down the column, one text is potentially capable of several different realizations. And no reading can ever exhaust the full potential. For each individual reader will fill in the gaps in his own way. And this, of course, brings us to the issue of gaps and the role that they play uh, in the act of reading, as Ezer understands it. A gap, it's an interesting term. I don't know I don't actually know whether easier e- to, to be Hersheyan means <laughs> uh, what I'm about to say about gaps, uh, but plainly, a gap is an abyss. it's a distance between two points. But what's really interesting is that we think of spark plugs. We think of gapping a spark plug. in other words, I don't know if you know how a spark plug works, but it, but 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 for the electrical current to into operation in a spark plug. The two points of contact have to be gapped. They have to be forced apart to a certain degree. Too much, there's no spark. Too little, there's no sp- too, too little, you short out, right? There's no spark. So you have to gap a spark plug. And it seems to me that the aha effect of reading, the movement back and forth across the gap, between the reader uh, and the text can be understood in terms of a spark, right? As though the relationship between the reader and the text were the relationship between the two points uh, of a spark plug. Uh, whether Gadamer means that when he speaks of gap or whether he simply means an abyss or distance to be crossed, <laughs> I couldn't say. Um, but I think it's useful, uh, you know, like the opportunities in the word plastic, I think it's useful. <laughs> Uh, to suggest that this sense of gapping as spark plug may have some relevance to our understanding of what goes on in this in this reading process. Now, <coughs> how then does he differ from Gadamer? One way that is, I think, not terribly important, but I think is interesting in view of what we've just been saying about Hirsch. And another way that's absolutely crucial that we've implied already, and to which we need to return, the way that's perhaps not terribly important, at least for present present purposes, although this is a distinction that's going to be coming up again and again later in the semester, is the way in which he actually seems to distinguish. This is page uh, one thousand six uh, in the. Uh, how can it be? I've got it uh, in the. Uh, yeah, in the uh, upper left hand column. The way in which he appears to distinguish between reading and interpretation, very top of the left hand column. He says, The text refers back directly to our own preconceptions, Gadamer would call those prejudices, to our own preconceptions, which are revealed by the act of interpretation that is a basic element of the reading process. So there's a wedge there between the concept of reading and the concept of interpretation. I would suggest that it's not unlike the wedge that Hirsch drives between the concept of meaning and the concept of, inter- of, of significance. In other words, meaning is construal. Significance is the application of that construal to something. I think that the distinction Ezer is making between reading and interpretation can be understood in much the same way. Ezer doesn't make much of the distinction. In other words, it's not an important part of his object uh, of his argument, which is why I say that the difference with Gadamer, who never makes the distinction between reading and interpretation, uh, the difference with Gadamer in this matter is slight. But the other difference is very important, and that is. To return to this point, that Easer stresses innovation as the principle of value governing the choice and the interpretive strategies of reading. Innovation is what Easer's canon is looking for. That's what makes it so different from Gadamer's conservative, continuous, traditional canon. Easer's understanding of gapping the spark plug, is a much more bold, uh, affirmative of the imaginative powers of the reader, a much more bold process than the uh, hesitant, conservative process suggested by Gadamer. Now in, or- and, uh, in order to illustrate the way in which what Ezer calls virtual work gets done in this regard, um, let me just uh, run through a few passages quickly. If Gadamer says in a way that, per, that, that he doesn't really stress in the long run that in order to know that there is actually a difference between the reader's horizon and the horizon of the text, you need to be pulled up short. Something needs to surprise you. Well, Ezer throws his whole emphasis on this element of surprise. If it doesn't surprise, it isn't worth it. It doesn't have value, and we'll, and we'll talk in more detail about the ways in which it doesn't have value in a minute. So the gap, if the element of surprise is to become absolutely central and paramount in the reading process, the gap has to get bigger. It has to be a bigger distance, a broader abyss, and that's what Easer is working with in the passages I'm about to quote. As I said, I'm going to quote three more or less rapid fire. The first is on page 1003, the upper left-hand column. In this process of creativity, that is to say the way in which a text induces the feeling of surprise in the reader, in this process of creativity, the text may either go not far enough or may go too far. Now I admit in this particular passage you get a hint of Gadamer's element of conservatism. The text may go through far. In other words, it may make demands on us that are too great. We're reading Finnegan's Wake. We haven't got a clue. The text has gone too far. Uh, We can't get from sentence to sentence. Even within the sentence we have no idea what the words mean, and so we're at sea. Uh, unless of course we really rise to meet the challenge, but typically or characteristically, you know, in, 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 in Easer's terms, the text has gone too far. So we may say, he elaborates here, so we may say that boredom and overstrain form the boundaries beyond which the reader will leave the field of play. In other words, if there are no surprises, that's just a yawn. I mean, why bother to read it all? And if the surprises are too great, they induce overstrain, uh, and we throw away the book um, in frustration and despair. Uh, and so, the distance of the gap needs to be between the outer limits of boredom and overstrain, according to, according to Ezer, page one thousand four, the upper right-hand column. Expectations, and this word is uh, what uh, Easer thinks, the the sort of dialectic that the reading process is playing with. Reading consists, according to Easer, in the violation of expectations. For the violation to work, the expectations have to be there, so that's the dialectic. That's what's negotiated. There has to be a sense, moving from sentence to sentence, that something is likely to happen next. If that underlying sense isn't there, then whatever happens is simply met with frustration. But if we have the expectation that something's going to happen next, and then something different happens, or if the suspense of wondering what will happen next is in play, so that anything can happen, and it and 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 the but 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 the experience of suspense um, has been gone through, then in those cases, that's all to the good. That's a good part of. The reading process. Expectations, says Ezer, are scarcely ever fulfilled in truly literary texts. You see, that's where the evaluative principle that completely revolutionizes Gadamer's canon comes in. In other words, innovation is the, the, the principle of change, the principle of violated expectation is what imposes or establishes value in the literary text, not continuity, not a sense that across the abyss truth is being spoken to us, but rather the sense that across the abyss we are being constructively surprised. That's, That's what has changed. Uh, between, between these two positions. Um, we implicitly dis- demand of expository text, he goes on, and he may be alluding to Gadamer here because, after all, Gadamer is talking primarily about expository text, works of philosophy, works of social thought, which of course aren't trying to surprise <laughs> or trick us. They're trying to lay out an argument which is consistent and continuous um, and keeps surprise to a minimum. It's difficult philosophy and social thought, but it's not difficult because of the element of surprise. It's the vocabulary, it's the complexity of the thought, and so on, that makes it difficult. So said, and Isry acknowledges this. He says, uh, w- uh, we implicitly demand of expository text uh, w- that there be no surprise, um, as we refer to the objects they are meant to present, but it's a defect in a literary text. That's the difference for Isaac between nonfiction and fiction. Of nonfiction, we don't want to be surprised. It, has other, it, it poses other kinds of difficulty, let's say. But in the case of fiction, in order to be engaged, in order to enter the hermeneutic circle properly, we need the element of surprise. So, as I say, a way of distinguishing between fiction and nonfiction. Page 1010, The lower right-hand column, the word defamiliarization we will encounter soon when we take up the Russian formalists. Defamiliarization means precisely pulling you up short or taking you by surprise, making you you feel that what you thought was going to be the case uh, or what you thought was the state of affairs is not the state of affairs. Wallace, The poet Wallace Stevens puts it beautifully when he says that poetry should make the visible a little hard to see. In other words, it should be a defamiliarizing of that which has become too familiar. That's an aspect of the reading process, and so Iser says, This defamiliarization of what the reader thought he recognized is bound to create a tension that will intensify his expectations as well as his distrust of those expectations. In other words, the tension itself of simultaneously having expectations and feeling that they should be violated, that probably they will be violated, being on the alert for how they're going to be violated. This is a kind of tension, a constructive tension, which constitutes for Easer the psychological excitement of reading. All right, having said all of this, obviously what Easer means to say is that the reader should work hard. There should be that the virtual work, done by the reader, to constitute, to bring into existence a virtual meaning uh, should be hard work. And there's not much work to do if two things are the case. First of all, if the text just seems real. In other words, if, if, it's, it, it, if, if there's no spin on reality, if there's no uh, sense of this being a fictive world, if it just seems to be, about the everyday, about life as we live it, the life that we find ourselves in. According to Easer, at least, there's no violation of expectations. The gap isn't big enough. This is, of course, disputable. There is a kind of a vogue, uh, recurrently in the history of fiction, for uh, a kind of uh, miraculous sense that this is just exactly the way things are. People enjoy that in ways that Ezer may not be fully acknowledging in this argument, but there's no question that it doesn't involve the violation of expectations. There's not much gap at all. It's another kind of pleasure that Ezer re- that is perhaps not taking into account that we take in that which seems to be simply incontestably real as we read it, uh, and, and Ezer leaves that out of account. On the other hand, um, he says, That there is no use either, uh, no value either, in that form of engagement with a text in which an illusion is perpetually sustained. In other words, an illusion is created. A never-never land is created. We know it's an illusion, but we get to live in it so comfortably with so little alteration of the nature of the illusion or of the way in which we negotiate the illusory world that it becomes kind of womb-like and cozy, uh, it is. I mean, and here, of course, Ezer's is referring to what he calls culinary fiction—the very the, the subgenres of literature like well, nurse novels, bodice rippers, uh, uh, certain kinds of 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 detective fiction. Although a lot of detective fiction is much better than than that description would imply. In other words, novels in which. Undoubtedly it's an illusory world. Things just don't happen the way they happen in nurse novels and bodice rippers, you know, somehow or another, you know, the pauper marries the prince. This doesn't happen. But at the same time, it's a world of illusion in which the reader lives all too comfortably. So these are forms of reading, of the reading, of the experience of reading fiction, of which Ezer disapproves because there's no work being done. The virtual work of the reader does not involve surprise, does not involve the violation of expectations. The relationship between text and reader must be a collaboration, Easer argues. The polysemantic nature of the text, that is to say the fact that the text sort of throws up all sorts of possibilities of meaning if it's a good text, (laughs) the polysematic nature of the text and the illusion-making of the reader are opposed factors. In other words, there's something in the reader that wants to settle comfortably into the world of the nurse novel, the bodice ripper, the formulaic detective novel, wants just to sort of exist comfortably in those worlds. But a good text is perpetually bringing the reader up short and preventing that comfort zone from establishing itself so that the tension between the the tendency on our part to sustain an illusion and the way in which the the text keeps undermining the illusion is, again, that aspect of the psychological excitement of reading that Ezer wants to concentrate on. Now a word about, then, Tony the Tow Truck in this regard. Um, I brought the text with me. Uh, You can look at it now or at your leisure. Uh, and I wanted to call attention to a few places in the text in which it is a question of expectation and of the way in which this expectation can be violated. Now it's only fair to say that if we're going to read Tony seriously in this way, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of a toddler. That is to say, as readers or Auditors, we, have to, we, you know, we have to think of ourselves and of the psychological excitement of experiencing the text as that of a toddler, uh, we, you know, and, and it's not so very difficult to do. For example, um, I'm Tony the Tow Truck. I live in a little yellow garage. I help cars that are stuck. I tow them to my garage. I like my job. One day I am stuck. Who will help Tony the Tow Truck? All right. now. This is a wonderful example of the tension between having expectations, ex- the expectation that someone will help Tony and being in a state of suspense, not knowing who it will be. Now from the adult point of view, this is culinary because we know that we're in the world of folklore and that in folklore everything happens three times. We know that two vehicles are going to come along and not help Tony and that the third vehicle will. Because everything, as I say, uh, happens in threes in folklore. N- and notice Tony the tow truck. Next week, when we read the Russian formalists, uh, we, will, we will learn uh, the research finding of one of the early formalists to the effect that repetition in verse is analogous to tautology in folklore. We have exactly that <laughs> going on in Tony the tow truck. Ta, ta, ta. And then the three events Nito the car, Speedy the car. Bumpy the car uh, you know, it's coming along in sequence and Bumpy finally resolving the problem. So in any case, we, uh, we, ha- we have an expectation. We have the dialectic of suspense on the one hand, how will this be resolved, and inevitability on the other, oh, it's a folktale, it'll be resolved, don't worry about it, uh, uh, and, we have and, and we have this suspense, as I say, between expectation, the possibility of violation, and simply not knowing. Okay, now, so we continue. I cannot help you, says Nito the car. I don't want to get dirty. I cannot help you, says Speedy the car. I am too busy. I am very sad. Then a little car pulls up. I think it's wonderful because, you know, it pulls up, just like Gadamer being pulled up short. Um, And the reason it seems to me that there's another crisis of expectation in this line is that, especially as a toddler, I need to negotiate that expression idiomatically you know i'm 3 years old maybe i don't know what pulls up means <laughs> you know it's a strange you know i mean it, it it it's probably not very good writing for a toddler precisely for that reason but at the same time you know it it lends itself to us because we recognize that there's a reading problem uh, or a piece of the virtual work that needs to be overcome before you can get on with it you have to find out what pulls up means in the same way that the adult reader of Pleasures of the Imagination has to find out what plastic means. and and As I say, it's it's a wonderful irony that this particular difficulty in reading is precisely what Gadamer calls being pulled up short. All right, so you solve the problem, and then lo and behold it turns out that it is my friend Bumpy. Bumpy gives me a push. He pushes and pushes, and I'm on my way. Thank you, Bumpy. I call that. You're welcome, says Bumpy. And now I think we get another expectation. This is the kind of story that has a moral. It's a feel-good story. Uh, there is, you know, something good has happened. Uh, there is a, this a sense of reciprocity is established between the tow truck uh, and the person who uh, helps the tow truck uh, out of being stuck. Uh, a, f- a fine sense of reciprocity. So the ex- expectation is that there will be a moral. The tension or suspense is what will the moral be? There are a variety of ways, in other words, in which. This story, just like the rhyme of the ancient mariner, could end. I mean, it, it's not—it's by no means clear that the rhyme of the ancient mariner will end. But you know, love all things great and small things. It could have ended any number of other ways. Uh, and just so, this story could end a number of ways. It happens to end. Now, that's what I call a friend. Well, fine. The moral is that reciprocity is friendship, and good, all—all all to the good. But as I say, there's the, there's a moment of suspense. In the expectation at the point in the text when we expect a moral, but we don't know what the moral is going to be. So once again, there's a kind of th- there's that moment of suspense that the reader is able to get through with a kind of pleasurable excitement and then overcome as the moral is actually revealed. All right, now so even Tony the tow truck, in other words, uh, is not absolutely culinary. <laughs> And can be uh, and can be treated in ways that I hope shed some light on uh, the reading process. All right. Very quickly, uh, the time is up. So let me conclude by saying that if there is this remarkable distinction between Gadamer and Ezer, between canons, where the methodology of Gadamer seems to impose on us a traditional canon. And the methodology of Easer seems to impose on us an innovative canon. Isn't there some relief in historicism after all? Because the whole point of historicism, as Gadamer himself puts it, is that it lets the canon be. We're not interested in establishing uh, a, a principle of value. That shapes a canon. We're interested in hearing everybody on his or her own terms and letting those texts be. In other words, doesn't historicism open the canon and indeed make the process of reading, the experience of reading, archival uh, and, and omnivorous rather than canonical? You know, if every text just is what it is and we can't bring, uh, methodologically speaking, Any kind of preconception to bear on what's a good text or what's a bad case, haven't we solved the problem of the limitation imposed on the reader by any kind of canon formation? Well, only, I say in conclusion, if we can distinguish between (laughs) meaning and significance. In other words, only if we really are sure that the historicist act of reading is effective and works. If I know, The meaning of a text, well, fine. Then later on, if I wish, I can establish a canon by saying certain texts have certain significance and those are the texts that I care about and want to read. But I can only do that if I can distinguish between meaning and significance. But if meaning and significance bleed into each other, What I'm I'm going to be doing is establishing a canon, as it were, unconsciously or semi-consciously. I'm going to say, ah, this is just what the text means, but at the same time I'll be finding ways, without realizing it, of affirming certain kinds of meaning uh, and discrediting certain other kinds of meaning. all the while saying, oh, it's just meaning. I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing that. Um, and that would if but if in fact my reading practice can be shown not clearly to distinguish between meaning and significance, well then that's what would happen. Uh, so it's still up in the air, and it's still perhaps inescapable that we read as it were canonically. Uh, but I think what is shown by thinking of various approaches to hermeneutics in these terms, I think what's shown is that uh, there is a relationship between methodology and canon formation, that certain things follow uh, from our assumptions about how to read. Uh, Evaluation uh, would seem rather at a distant remove from simple considerations of how to read, but in fact uh, I think we've shown that evaluation is in one way or another implicit in certain methodological premises as they establish themselves in the work of these various writers. Okay, thank you very much.